0: hello and welcome to the overland journal podcast i am your host scott brady and i'm here with my co-host matt scott and we have we have a very special guest today one of my closest personal friends an extremely experienced photographer director videographer and overlander bruce dorn Thanks yeah. So much.
1: For it's Uncle Brucey, Uncle Brucey, yeah, in, right in, in the house. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, I prefer to be addressed as Uncle Zusi.
2: So here's what we're going to talk about today. Is so we're going to talk about somebody that's had, I think, one of the coolest lives of anybody that I know. Has taught me a lot. Has taught a lot of people a lot of things. From humble beginnings to to Hollywood to racing to you know driving around the world with Expedition Seven with Scott and all the trips that we've done. Let's start in Indiana.
0: This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com
1: born very close to the race day of the indiana yeah 500 i remember you saying that like uh, there, were, there was
2: a a particular engine i know that offenhauser had something to do with when those in particular were running you could hear them from the speedway
1: yeah i uh, lived about 27 miles from the speedway as the crow flies and when the novi the supercharged hmm. Novi's, novi, were running yeah they did it even back then i born in 51 but as a, a kid in the 50s I could hear them. They'd do 250 on the straights. And then you'd hear them just shut off and try to you knew somebody was frantically sawing away at a steering wheel and then back down the back stretch. So yeah, I sort of got methanol in my blood, you Mm -hmm. know, from growing up near the home of motorsports. Yeah. I mean,
2: for those that don't know Two hundred fifty mile an hour in the fifties and sixties. <laughs> they don't do any faster than that now. <laughs> yeah,
1: on ridiculously narrow tires, bias yeah. ply tires. Cajones. Oh my gosh! And the roll bar came up to mid back. Yeah, you know, none of this nonsense of having it above your head. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah, your exactly. spine's compressible to a certain extent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: at least from from my perspective, you know, motorsports has always been a common theme in the life of Bruce Dorn. You've always had. Cars, race cars, fast cars. fast cars. I mean, growing up in Indianapolis, like I think, you know, I don't want to say that Indianapolis kind of gets maybe the cold shoulder these days, but it was, it was
1: for decades the center Mm -hmm. of motorsports in the world. It was one of the stops on the Formula One circuit back in the day. I think in their corner at Le Mans, it's called Indianapolis. It's a hard 90 degree left hander. One of the tracks has a corner called Indianapolis because India is a two and a half mile oval that's basically three straightaways. It was always a big part of my life. Growing up there, I spent the summers on my grandmother's farm in Southern Indiana, and there was a short track, a little dirt bull ring, not too far away. And my grandmother worked at the concession stand. <laughs> if you looked hungry, she'd fry up a chicken for you. And I stood outside turn four, dodging the dirt clots. So yeah. didn't get to race early. Well, I raced motorcycles early. I started running Hare and hound and motocross. Motocross was different then. Bikes had three inches of travel. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it was mostly your spine that was the yeah, suspension, which explains a lot. <laughs> explains a lot about my physical condition. But now I started racing at about age fourteen.
2: Yeah, because you used to be about six eight, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and your legs were a hundred percent of the suspension. But now ran, uh, gosh, Husqvarnas, uh, Hodakas, tacos a lot of stuff. I mostly ran 125s because I just wasn't fast enough, quick enough for the really big fast stuff. But once in a while, ran a 402 stroke or something like that. The bikes back then, the throttle was like Satan's light switch. Yeah. It was all or nothing. Yeah. I still miss the smell of castrol. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe we snort some afterwards. <laughs> yeah. I have I have two strokes in my garage. Nice. nice.
0: That's right. You do. Well, and I remember one of the stories that you talked about was it was, I think you were in New Zealand where you, you flipped a mini about 80 times.
1: So I, I was on the U S team. Team USA 94 95 on TQ midgets. It's USAC. Yeah. The midget and the TQ series three quarter midget goes back to the 1930s, I yeah. think. And actually, it was all midgets. Racing midgets does sound so, that, sort that's of socially appropriate. and I really became
2: friends. as we both raced midgets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In Indianapolis. Yeah.
1: And I, I know there's a more culturally appropriate. They're way just to called say it. sprint cars. So, so the hierarchy was quarter midgets, which you which is where up I started on. at, and then. TQs. Oh, which we're going to talk about that. Okay. So there was quarter midgets, which great big giant. And the reason he won is because I, I, you're long torso and you could plant. Your I body. could put
2: all of my weight. Yeah. I, so, I saw you do
1: that when we were racing up the go-karts <laughs> out there in
2: Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Remember we
1: were running with, yeah. what's her name? The Those world were Jesse Coombs. Yeah, Yeah. Quarter midgets, TQs, which were 750s. And then there were full midgets. And then there were silver crown cars, which were long wheelbase, sp- no, sprint cars. And then silver crown, which were long wheelbase sprint cars. And then there were gold crown, which were indie cars. You and I were both in the ladder system to go to Indy and yep. neither of us quite made it. But I was on Team USA, went down to New Zealand to race against the Kiwis and the, the Aussies. And I think I... I last used my last motor up, but with three or four races go in the six week series. And I got fourth in the series. So I was running good. Yeah, I was running good. Yeah. Opening. So, so our cars went down ahead of us. I got on a whatever it was, a 21 hour flight down there and uh, didn't have any ambience. So I didn't sleep a wink. We got off the airplane. The guys from the local TQ club met us. And they said, which ones are your your uh, gear bags? Oh, this one. Start putting on your fire suits. They drove us directly to the track, put us on a podium out in the middle of the track, shut off fireworks, <laughs> and our cars were idling and ready to go. So, I mean, I was going, wait a minute, you know? So, um, And because we were the Yanks, you know, and supposedly we had some, I don't know, advantage, they started us in the back and uh, we ran four main events a night. So four 30-lap features a night. And we ran about three nights a week, I guess it was. Opening night, I think I ran from dead last up to maybe third. And then in the second race, uh, still, they didn't move us up any. I was passing guys, passing guys, passing guys. And I remember just trying to squeak by this guy on the outside, on the front straight. And I ran up his back wheel. It turned out it was the white flag lap and I was passing the leader. I just passed guys. I don't don't know where I'm at. And... I just snap rolled a a whole bunch of times. And it was just like sky ground, sky ground, sky ground, (laughs) sky ground. And the lap the crotch belt was like really getting my attention. (laughs) And then I'm doing like this and I'm feeling the crotch belt, you know, is is not so tight. The shoulders are tight and the engines running wide open. I go, oh yeah, I take my foot off the gas. Just as some track worker comes in, the car was upside down on the cage. He undoes my belts, and I go straight down onto my head. Right. And uh, the G-force is actually, uh, my vision went dark. That's when I did a bunch of tears in my retina, which four or five years later, fully detached. But I remember I was, I get out of the car, and you know how when the guy gets tackled, and he's woozy, he always stands up and waves to the crowd. So I'm, I'm waving to the crowd. And one of the guys grabs me by the shoulders and turns me around. I was was waving at the darkness and the the crowd was over here. So instantly they loved me. I was that guy. I was that guy. You know, I go back to the pits and my vision is dark. It was like suddenly I had on six stops of neutral density. And I'm kind of looking and I noticed that they're working on my car and I'm going, they're sending me back out. You know? <laughs> and, and They were circulating and they were holding a position for me up like second row, something like that, waving me up there. I'm going, no, because I knew that the car wasn't set up. They just threw parts at it. Right. So I went to the back, got up there. I don't know if I wanted or not, but I ran good, ran really good. We ended up touring the island. Uh, we were on the South Island racing, Ruapuna, uh, Greymouth, But- a wonderful experience except when we ran into the bees uh, uh that's another story but there was a whole problem with honeybees and, <laughs> and a third world windshield that shattered and then we ran into a whole lot of bees
2: that's oh is good. that is that where you gave me the advice when i went to new zealand to get, get the, the windshield, windshield insurance, insurance? Yeah, absolutely. yeah
1: yeah absolutely we got to stop i, these I didn't
2: get the windshield or,
1: insurance <laughs> well we didn't either and and we, we were it was boxing day and the windshield shattered i was in the back seat behind the driver i see the windshield spider web and then, thank God, I had on sunglasses. There was not safety glass. We all got a million shards in our face and a lot of bees <laughs> because the, the beehives were over here and the marigold field was over here. And we drove right through, you know, sort of a super highway of bees. And we spent the next six hours getting stung, you know, by <laughs> stuff that had found its way down into our pants. It was, it was pretty special. Yeah. But I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So mm. Team USA. Go Team USA. Yeah. So let's go back to Indy.
2: I think one of the, one of the the interesting things where we first crossed paths, but we didn't know, was you started talking about shooting the Indy Mile. Yeah, Well, we used to run at the little racetrack. You, you were in that.
1: Yeah, you were in that little swimming pool. The that, little swimming called, pool
2: at like age five, turning left and pulling three G's. Well,
1: I, I, I was there to shoot. Well, actually, I was actually there when Kenny Roberts ran the TZ seven fifty that, you know, two stroke bike that he rode once. And I watched him work in a groove on the outside and come from the back to win that race. It was unbelievable. I went back there to revisit that spot and actually document where that dirt cloud hit me in the nuts at 140 miles an hour, <laughs> you know, and then I went over to turn four because turn two, because the sun was setting down the back stretch. Yeah. and I was right by, yeah, it was right by turn two by the little track. And I watched, I watched some guys in there and I think it was two and a half seconds a lap. Unbelievable. It was was unbelievable. And these kids, I want to say it's closer to four, but that was in your era. This is when I was out there more recently when they were quick, (laughs) but uh, yeah, you'd see them set up and do slide jobs and everything. And it's just like watching a race like this, Yeah, you know, they are beautiful. I admired quarter midgets when I was growing up and a couple of my grade school buddies raced them. And, you know, they'd have them on a the table in the basement, you know, a yeah. little tiny. It was a fully suspended race car that a five-year-old could drive.
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds perfect. So you learned a lot about car control and you learned how things reacted and you learned stagger and you learned weight jack and you learned everything.
1: You weren't in the sleepy trip era, were you? Did you ever? Because he, he started in quarter midgets and he got his nickname Sleepy, a big time midget and sprint car guy because he'd fall asleep. He was so, he was so relaxed that when they were setting up the starting grid. They'd have to wake him up. Oh, I race. would for sure
2: fall asleep. My Like there's pictures that my dad has of me, like sitting ready to race, falling asleep and then slaps me on the helmet, yeah, wake yeah. up, picks the thing up, runs with it, drops it. Cause that's how you'd yeah. start it. And <laughs> then
1: hopefully by then you'd be fully
2: awake. <laughs> I think that was pretty common for Five and six year olds that were being made to race at 10 p.m.
1: You know, my buddy Eli and I are thinking about building a quarter midget and just finding some kid, yeah, no just find more. a kid. You know, <laughs> talk hey, to my dad; we still have all the parts. So yeah, no, it was fun. When I started racing, oh gosh, I was I had started to do really well in Hollywood. So when I started to race, you know, you got to have cubic money and just be prepared to throw it in a check shredder. And at one point, I think I was racing in seven divisions and had a full race shop and some guys that maintained the cars. Sponsoring but, a Formula Atlantic car, too. That's right. I sponsored a Formula Atlantic.
2: But let's go back. I'm going to stop you there. <laughs> I'm
1: going to stop you from
2: talking about racing. Let's let's go back to uh, Mademoiselle magazine, Conde Nast. Yeah,
1: it's such a great story. Age 2021 No gosh uh so between my sophomore and junior year at, and, at Heron Design School junior and senior year yeah so that would have been i would have been just 2021 20, something like that Yeah.
2: this is really where you kind of spread your wings and fly
1: so yeah i fly, I, fly, Brucey. I I picked up photography when my brother-in-law loaned me a camera for this summer trip going to going to art school with the intention of being an illustrator or graphic designer there was a minor in photography available, and, and of course, I was going to do that. I was dating a girl that worked at the mall. I was working at a Texaco station, and I was doing oil changes and lube jobs and all that, and we were kind of running out of common stuff to talk about. I was over at the magazine stand buying some car magazines, and the women's interest magazines were here. I picked up a magazine. It fell open to uh, call for entries for a college competition. Bought the magazine, went home, read it up applied. It was a a protracted process. It was you had to do a whole bunch of creative projects uh, and it was a whole series of questionnaire questions that were clearly focused on women. This competition went back to the 1930s as they kind of asked college board and they'd pick 12 students from around the nation. There was no social media. You couldn't tell what kids were thinking. You couldn't tell what the up and comers were interested in. And they had long since created this college board. So they had never had a guy enter it before. So all the questions were aimed toward women. And I just went crazy on that, <laughs> you know, because I was, can you type one finger each hand, a shorthand? No, both normal lengths. the other side. And I drew a picture around my hand. <laughs> they found me mildly amusing, sent a junior fashion editor out to check to see if well, I was a total creep or not. And I ended up winning the guest art directorship. So First time ever on an airplane was to Manhattan to check into the Biltmore to start work on Monday. And that first week, they sent me to Reykjavik uh, to art direct a sweaters shoot with Arthur Elgort, uh, Ansel Elgort's dad, the guy that's the star of Baby Driver. Wow. His dad was a photographer, I art directed. I went from Reykjavik to Paris and shot Kenzo, Betsy Johnson. I forget which collections. And then I went to Rome and shot out Runway on the Spanish Steps. So I went from like literally from Friday at the Texaco to the following Friday, I was seeing supermodels changing clothes backstage, you yeah. know, and I, I was said. I was a, a big jump. I was digging the fashion industry pretty yeah. quick, you know.
2: Yeah, didn't you say that you went to uh, some champagnes? Est- oh, geez. champagne estate.
1: Yeah. So everybody, uh, because we were representative of all college students, and they just happened to have. Well, actually, another guy entered that year, uh, and he was guest fiction editor. So there were two of us, and then ten girls, and they wanted to entertain you and pick your brains. So, uh, Levi's put on a big show for us, Cointreau Dom Perignon. We went to the Dom Perignon vineyards family at the family estate. And, and
2: I mean, the first time you drink champagne probably is not only Dom Perignon, but it's in Champagne, France at the Dom Perignon
1: estate. Yeah. So I always had on a Caterpillar hat, you know, a cat diesel hat and, you know, jeans and, and my hair was about as long as it is now. I, I, I went to makeovers. They had makeovers for the girls, and, and they didn't know what to do with me. So, by the way, my sum, I am a summer in terms of my complexion. You know? And uh, yeah, Clinique worked me over and, and had my hair cut by some high end hair cutter. It was surreal.
0: Yeah, you know, Bruce, what's what's fun is because I've heard most of these stories. And, and first of all, they remain the same stories, which means that there's a high probability that they're accurate. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> and that then I've I've so also heard a bunch of people repeat them with the same degree of accuracy. But one of the things that I remember from this trip that you did to Europe yeah. that stuck out to me yeah. was that there was this older gentlemen oh, yeah. that happened to be in Europe and I think it's an important lesson about having mentors in our life. So would you mind sharing that? Yeah, I love that.
1: I love that. Yeah. I was crushing on three sisters back in Indianapolis. This, uh, the one of the girls was in my one of my art classes and she had an older sister and a younger sister and their dad was a lovely fellow and he, he wanted me to photograph all the girls for the, you know, some portraits of them at that age for the wall. I think he secretly kind of wanted to have a son. I had a good relationship with him. I put that on the side. I fly over to Europe. I'm checking into the hotel the first night in Paris and running into my first snarky Parisian uh, <laughs> desk clerk. <laughs> sure. And I'm checking in, and he goes Monsieur Don, and he hands me an envelope that was, you know, in the box for me along with my key, and it was a sealed envelope. And I tear it open, and it's a note from the father of these girls. And he says, I'm in, I'm in Paris. I want to take you out to dinner tonight. He was a patent lawyer. He was actually the company he worked for was the guys that uh, created powder coating. Okay. So that yeah. electrostatic paint, uh, baking. paint baking, and he went around the world suing uh, people that were messing around with that. So he picks me up. We go out to dinner. I mean, I had never seen so many forks. I'd never seen so many spoons. I had never seen so many glasses and he very gently without humiliating me worked me through the process of how you behave like a gentleman i'm paying very close attention and i'm also pretty mesmerized because just beyond him was an old an older guy that had hair like i have and he he was surrounded by supermodels and he was delicately eating a caesar salad one leaf at a time while the girls all flittered around and I was going, I like this guy and I really like that guy too. I got some sort of brick and mortar ways to behave from the the father of my gal pals. And then I sort of got a goal for where I wanted to go in terms of being a wacky old artist. You <laughs> yeah. know?
0: And you achieved both. I'm somehow. trying to fulfill <laughs> so, that destiny. <laughs> somehow. You know? I think the thing that I like about that story and, and appreciated you sharing it was that we often all need that person. Uh, when we go to a new country and we have a chance to spend time with someone that's local, ask them the things that you can do to best you know, respect their culture and maybe do some research ahead of time. So I think that that experience that you had, not only was it very beneficial for you, but based upon how I've known you is that you have spent a lifetime doing the same for others and mentoring others. And I want to get into
1: mentoring with you a little bit later in the conversation, mm-hmm. but that's such a great story. I'm a big pay it forward guy. I, my dad worked his butt off to support his family and I didn't see him a whole lot. You know, I, I really would have liked to have had the experience growing up going fishing with your dad and doing this and that with your dad. You know, you got to spend a lot of time with your, Spent dad, a lot of time with my dad. racing yeah. and stuff where I grew up. There was a father of girls on one side and a father of girls on the other side. And they both kind of liked having a, a boy around, especially one that was, enthusiastic about stuff. So, I, I got some really great guidance from those guys. And then I have run into people all my life, I'm going to call them benevolent adult males, you know, who would just notice that I was trying or that I was had some potential. And a number of occasions, uh, my life's direction has changed because somebody noticed and bothered to give me a bit of guidance so absolutely i've i've always tried to do that i great, take great pleasure in it
0: well and bruce you've done that for me you've done that for matt i can think back even Within moments of meeting you, you were already freely giving
2: unsolicited
1: advice. That's right. But things
2: things we needed to hear. That's why we're talking the other day about an AI app, Uncle Brucey, that offers you advice. Yeah, exactly. We just have to save Bruce's mind into AI.
1: Ask Mr. New at all. (laughs)
2: Let's go from gallivanting around Europe and Mademoiselle magazine. You're back in Indiana. Yeah. You decide not right. You know, I, I, the I, second I, time you get on a plane <laughs> is to move into a studio apartment off of Fifth Avenue. No,
1: not a studio. My oh, oh, a penthouse. Penthouse loft on yeah, Fifth Avenue. Yeah. 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 yeah I had a, a, a nice gig with a local department, with a Midwest department store chain that I came back to after the experience with Condonast. But it was, you know, that was really how you're going to keep them down after the, on the farm after they've seen Paris, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. Sure. So uh, at the first opportunity, I joined a, uh, fledgling glam glam rock band that was going to try to make it in New York. And it was the glam rock era and I helped them with promotion and staging. And we lived in a 4,000 square foot penthouse loft and they didn't want the front. I had the Fifth Avenue front view. I built a wonderful dark room and a rehearsal hall in the back. I was the only one that knew how to use a hammer and a nail. We renovated that loft. We sanded down the floors. It had been a button factory. It was in the garment district. I remember uh, my life was sleep until four in the afternoon or three in the afternoon, run around the fashion magazines and uh, get an assignment and then stay up all night. All the little fashion editors and all the beautiful people. Our loft was one of the stops on their deal. New York dolls would come over. We'd go to Max's Kansas City and CBGB's and Andy Warhol's loft you've been to Andy Warhol's loft of course (laughs) geez come on
0: All right, moving on. Come on. Any? Yeah. It's like, do we dare ask for any Andy Warhol? Andy Warhol. Stories?
1: It's like it's like Elton John. You know, always with copy in my glasses. You yeah. know, uh, always. Yeah. No. So it was. I was living the, the 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 nightlife thing there, and it was it was pretty fabulous. They the, got the band to the point that they were going to sign for a TV. It's kind of a follow up to the monkeys, which is going of resonate with no one. That's a reference from way back. There yeah. was a, they wanted to do another variation on this band. What's going to be it? Don Kirshner recognized that's the drummer. That's the bass player. That's the lead guitarist. That's the rhythm guitarist. And who are you? Oh, we don't need you. So everybody got signed into a multi-year contract where they gave up like, I don't know, some ludicrous percentage of what they'd make for the rest of their lives. And I didn't and thank, you know, thank Buddha because. I was able to go my own way, and they got stuck. Even if they were doing paper routes, they still had to yeah, sure. get some commissions. I had a really great time in New York, and then I guess I should mention that when I won the guest editorship, I had a, applied to Missoula, and I was going to go get my master's degree. I had gotten a bachelor's degree. I was going to go to Missoula, and I, I think I was going to be uh, going to study a jewelry making for my master's. And I was going to go, I wanted to be a smoke jumper. So I was going up there to do that. And it was going to go to national outdoor leadership school that, that summer. And then I was going to go to Missoula and I thought I'll be a smoke jumper. And instead, I was a fashion photographer in New York, Paris and Rome.
0: Who knows how it would have gone the other way. And at what point in time did you study typesetting? Cause you even studied that at some point in time. So my- you've given us, I mean, Overland Journal... A lot of the the typeface that we use is because of you.
1: So yeah my degree I, I thought I'd be an illustrator and I got it was a very interesting program I went through it was uh, the old world uh, master and apprentice kind of a program was in effect and and that was being sort of changed over to the new conceptual kind of uh, free associative art. Uh, I was in a program called visual communications which had typography, uh, 3D design, 2D design. I did We built fine art furniture. We did color theory. I understand the Bauhaus theories of design and so on. And yeah, typography is about as pure design as you can do. The most important thing that came out of that really was, well, the school, we'd, we'd, in just about 300 students would go into the sophomore program and about 22 would graduate. It was before school's survived by being diploma mills. Mm-hmm. So uh y- if you got through it, you you for sure got an education and you for sure had an opportunity for a job. They hired all the 3D designers out of the school to go to uh Detroit to do clay modeling for Body by Fisher or you know, before there was CG there was clay. Well so, there's still
2: clay in yeah. automotive design. I mean Which remember when we went yeah. to the Land River
1: Design Center, there's yeah, still that was amazing. It's 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 real hands on stuff. Creative process. And you know I think I had shared with you that I was accepted uh, to art center i I was going to get a full ride at art center to do automotive design but i was poor and you had to i had to work i wouldn't be able to eat or buy gasoline to get to school and they had a a mandate that you couldn't work you had to uh, dedicate yourself 100 percent to your studies so i had to walk away from art center in pasadena and ended up at a local fine art institution that I'm glad I have that education. I'll I'll fight anybody that says that going to college is worthless because it was really worthwhile for me. No illustration, uh, although I can draw. I'm pretty good at that. Uh, The application of that is limited. In
0: fact, you have a bunch of your art going into the next issue of the magazine, so...
1: Oh, yeah. Well, if this breaks before the next issue of (laughs) the magazine comes out, that'll make perfect sense. (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Actually, I did those uh, in conjunction with one of my students from back then, a fellow that was in one of my very, when I taught. So I I guess I should mention that I ended up teaching at the university level full time for about five years and uh, still very close to a lot of students. Yeah, yep, yep. After doing a stint, that stint in New York was drifting west, just wanted to get out of Manhattan. I love that experience, but I'm a little bit more of an outdoorsman. And Central Park wasn't quite enough. On my way west, I stopped off in Indianapolis to see some friends and I was offered a sabbatical position. And that turned into a full-time position until about 1980 when I headed further west. You know. And you ended up in Phoenix. Yep. Uh, I was married to a gal and she got a job as a creative director at a new, new agency in uh, Phoenix. Uh, it was great advertising, I believe. And uh, sh- there was a note on the refrigerator, move to Phoenix, come on out. You know, and I was still in the middle of a teaching contract. <laughs> so I was a bachelor for a minute, uh, more than a minute. And then I eventually, I didn't re-sign my next contract and I, I joined her in Phoenix and then sat around watching a lot of cartoons. You well, know. You've
0: seen Phoenix change. Holy cow. Oh yeah. Phoenix in the eighties would be unrecognizable. No 101, no
1: 51 freeway. It was just this straight grid of streets where you could get killed at every left turn intersection. A horrible place to own a motorcycle because there are no corners.
0: Is that where you got run over by a guy on a bicycle? You've had a lot of close calls
1: with bicycles. I got run over by a guy on a bicycle with you when we were in (laughs) Amsterdam. Oh no, that was in the one you're referring to was when I was coming out of a photo lab in Hollywood and a guy on a mountain bike, a big burly West Hollywood guy hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, Look at me. Me flying through the air means there's a lot of inertia involved. <laughs> That's right, momentum. You know? yeah. But I remember looking down at this guy and you know, wham. And then uh he comes over, oh, Mister, are you okay? And then he realizes he just may have injured a guy. And so then I have this other vision of him with the potato chip front wheel, trying to run away on the, <laughs> you know, but I was, but didn't no, you
0: end up like through a plate glass and on top
1: of a oh, pool, that pool was
0: a, table, that was something different. Yeah. That was,
1: <laughs> yeah, that was on my normal commute to work. I, I had a 400 Honda F with a beautiful little four cylinder that would run about 11,000 RPM. And I had this one set of corners, Well, that corner was the one where I was sitting at the traffic light with my arms folded, and I saw a Buick Skylark logo right here. Car landed on my front wheel, and I flew through there. I never unfolded my arms. I just landed on my head. (laughs) And I woke up, and a big biker guy picked me up, threw me in the back of his truck. My Honda was already in there, and he drove me home. The one you're talking about was that same intersection. I had this series of corners. And the night before it had rained and somehow somebody had dumped a bunch of transmission fluid and there was a nice river of slickness across the road. So I low sided the bike between oncoming traffic. It went up the handicapped ramp. Uh, No, it hit the curb and started doing the ragdoll. I went up the handicapped ramp onto the wet lawn and through the plate glass window and onto the pool table of the drug halfway house. And and the drug halfway guys were very annoyed that I was bleeding on their Felt uh, pool table, <laughs> and then and then they go, oh a biker, what you got? And then they saw I was on hot anyway. Oh, mm-hmm. so yeah, I have an endless stream of crash stories, but <laughs> yeah. I do need triggers to remember. But yeah, that one was that one was pretty special. Yeah.
2: Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about Phoenix, and then let's then let's talk about Brucey going to
1: Hollywood. Phoenix, uh, I I figured it out pretty quick. I I was. Uh, my rent was nothing. I had my studio. You said it was like 350 bucks a month
2: for your big studio, commercial studio.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it wasn't that huge, but it was adequate. It was downtown. And then I, I lived in the Squaw Peak Lodge. I think my, my my housing was all all in for studio and home was 450 a month. Okay. I was pulling down 125000 a year, working a day a month, you know. And the rest of the time, I was either running dirt bikes crashing and breaking my back on dirt bikes or racing Hobie cats or skiing at Telluride or running three wheelers in the dunes oh yeah
2: oh oh favorite story favorite story
0: <laughs> yeah, this one we this one every these are all true stories we're not you're not being uh, this uh, is not april 1st no no, no.
1: you got to tell the story so you're there in glamis so they invented these three wheelers you yeah. remember those diabolical three wheelers the very first ones had no suspension did they it, end up banning them uh, or did they just stop making
2: them because they were getting sued i think in a yeah i think there were yeah. lawsuits your um, legs would go underneath them and you would die
1: yeah it was like a wishbone where you I, that, yeah. that's that's what happened when i broke my back my legs both went under both wheels and it kind of made a wish no <laughs> be- be- before that before that we were they uh, honda came out with a cr 250 so it was a 250 motocross bike two stroke in this nice little uh compact three-wheeler and they were fun you just slide them and you could bicycle them you know do whatever you want they were only dangerous if you were an idiot and didn't know how to slide and you know a flat tracker so we, we were having a blast. So a buddy and I had them and we, we got them. And it was it was during the wrong time of the season to go over to uh, the Yuma Dunes. It was hot because it was too early or hot before, because it was too late. I don't remember, but it was hot. It was hot and there was nobody there. And and we we're very excited. We just picked them up from the Honda dealership, threw them in the back of my we had a trailer and I had one of those uh, Toyotas that everybody wants—the little the SR5, solid actual, yeah, uh, solid, uh, SR5, long, long bed, uh, single cab, yeah. four-wheel drive, yeah, 22R, yeah, perfect. Slug slow. Anyway, we we race out to Yuma, uh, and and we get off to this place where we used to always run dune buggies, and we unload them, and it's we we got an hour, you know, before it gets dark. Hell with it, we're gone, and we're roosting out there, and we. Knew our way around and we were heading to the bowl of death. <laughs> it was the highest sand. And at the bottom, there was a circle about the size of a paper plate that was the hard pack of the desert floor. But other than that, it was just this astonishing deep bowl. And once you got in it, you had to kind of get out of it this way. There was no corpse tornado your to way out. out or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A reverse toilet flush. And um, <laughs> so I come up that roost over the edges and I, I double take because there's a flipping flying saucer hovering down there. About twenty feet off the ground, and I, I you know, I, my momentum carried me around, and I, I come back around, and I, I and it's, it's. This is where we start talking about how aliens are real, and we've seen them. It's there. Well, this is the story I always do when if anybody says, "Anybody ever see an alien?" You know, <laughs> but I mean, I'm doing the ear, ear and I, I wave my buddy over, and I get him to stop, and we marine crawl over and peek over the edge, you know, and we studied that thing for a while, and it was floating in the air down there. Space it was big. It was substantial. But it was weird because it kind of looked like an ironclad. It kind of looked, I don't know if anybody even learns this stuff anymore, but it looked like the Monitor in the Merrimack, yeah, kind sure. of the Civil War era, but a yeah, spaceship. Yeah, the first metal It was like Jules Verne yeah. flipping thing. And we're watching it and listening for sounds and seeing no activity. And finally, we got up to the balls to go down there. We go down. And we, we were getting closer and closer to it. And it was even more and more scary because here this thing is. And there's no tire tracks. There's nothing, no. Nothing. It was just hovering down there. Where would you hide if you were a spaceship? <laughs> Hiding in a, in a dune bowl, you know, it'd be perfect. <laughs> but we get down there and then I see that they're, they're in the center. There was a switchback staircase and it was built on a bunch of telephone poles. Uh, and it was Jabba the Hutt's Sand Cruiser. And that movie was being made and they had finished the shoots every day. At the end of the day, they would come in with, I learned later, they're coming in with a helicopter and blow all the tracks out. Yeah, sure. And so... We climbed all over that thing. It had the trap door for the sand. The tentacle-y yeah. kill you. yeah. And I mean, I knew a little bit about showbiz and props and things like that. And the scenic painting on it was astonishing. They had dressed in sand at the base of it, the hide-all of it. You really had to be in the right position to be able to see that it was a prop. Wow. We climbed all over that thing and then we were wanting to bring some folks back to it and it was gone. Yeah. It was gone. Um, hey, man, I see the spaceship. And then check it out. a couple of years later, <laughs> here came Star I Wars War. There was a the time I built a, a two story house out in the middle of those same dunes and put in a bluegrass lawn. And uh, it was for Scott's turf builder or something. And I remember seeing this desert bird fly over and he does this same kind of double take <laughs> I did, you know? And he, he lands and he's rolling around on the grass and chirping and everything. And I'm going, bro, go get your friends, you know. <laughs> and we were out of there in a couple of hours. And I just imagined him going, no, I swear. It was right here. Bluegrass. It was right here. Kentucky but, bluegrass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, brought in several flatbed trailers of Kentucky bluegrass, which turned to bacon in about an hour and a half mm. because the sun just completely destroyed it. But um I digress. That was that was one of the many, many fun ones. Is so let's just imagine
2: you riding that little three-wheeler all the way to Hollywood and let's transition to there.
1: No, I went, the way I got to Hollywood was in my Persian sand-colored 1960 Cadillac convertible, which was some kind of a magnet. I'm trying to remember what kind of a magnet it was. It was I was very popular <laughs> when I drove Sunset Strip with the top down in that thing. Yeah, sure. I remember I'd be sitting at a traffic light and the suspension would gently settle and I'd look back and there'd be three young ladies that had decide to hop in. (laughs) I recommend a 1960 Cadillac. For any scenario. In Persian sand, which is code for metallic pink. And (laughs) I I drove it with the gangster lean steering it like this. You know, I
2: hear all these stories of people like having cars and then ladies being attracted to them. But the only people who talk to me about my cars are guys.
1: Yeah. Well, see. I mean, you don't so, look like Bruce? So, so, some people can ruin even the sexiest car, what can I say? <laughs> now leave the Porsches alone, would you please? Just yes. leave them alone. I am the Porsche people my dad warned me about. <laughs> the, the move to Hollywood came out of the blue. I was went from having nothing to do in, in Phoenix to develop uh, developing the Phoenix or the Arizona Phoenix Art Directors Club and got a lot of work. My kind of photography was different. They did a lot of tabletop and large format and I was More uh, loose handheld and, you know, sort of lifestyle kind of stuff. Started shooting motion picture stuff there. Worked for another guy who was a producer, director, and he needed a cameraman. I said yes. Recurring theme in my life is to say yes, even if I shouldn't. And then figuring out how to make that yes turn out okay. Did a few spots. Started my own production company. Ended up in the Clio Awards, which is kind of like the Tony's Emmys. It's a big deal. Yeah. And so I was in the finals uh, for, a, I, think, I, I forget what category it was in, but I was up against the biggest special effects house in the world. And with my little tiny okay, little you said it was like a million
2: the, dollar budget, yeah, versus there a, a $25,000 yeah, budget.
1: Yeah. And in my stuff, if it needed a set, I built it. If it needed hand talent to pour beer, I'd get a manicure and pour the beer and I did everything I could possibly do. Anyway, I was up against some I Pretty sure they beat me within a few weeks of the award ceremony. I got a phone call from the, the big effects house and they wanted me to come over and interview. So I, I flew over 55 minute flight, uh, had an interview. They offered me a job, an independent contractor job. And this a, was
2: Robert Abel and Associates, Robert Abel and which Associates. is a big deal. If you look at I mean, they were like the pioneering motion graphics, special effects house.
1: Yeah, it was uh, in, uh, industrial light and magic yeah. and, and digital productions and Robert Abel. And ILM was the ILM guys, Industrial Light and Magic guys were kind of specializing in feature stuff because it was Lucas, George Lucas, Lucasfilm. We were doing commercials and Robert Abel Associates really couldn't do any, uh, couldn't bid the big jobs because they didn't have any directors. They had a ton of really talented uh, special effects people or uh, graphics people that's where I met Mara she's in the history books for her work that she did at Robert Abel as a uh, designer and wasn't uh, she somehow involved with the beam me up Scotty yeah yeah she did which the, is amazing yeah she did the the wormhole sequences and the hi, that hyperspace thing uh, that's my wife yeah she she's literally so awesome. in the history book for her, her yeah we on. should have
2: had her and she's better
1: she's a lot better and she would be here telling you she'd be you could you can hear her eye rolls from here <laughs> because she I'm, you know, I'm telling stories i told one not too long ago that she had never heard which which i, I saw her that's do this the only lie you've take. ever told well <laughs> <laughs> it was a really cool place to work um I went in there and and I figured out special effects pretty quick because I'm a mechanic, right? Number one, I was a mechanic. Number two, I was a designer artist. And so here's this confluence of cameras and logical thinking, you know. We invented the first uh, motion control camera there where the camera shoots and moves and shoots and moves. And we also did, and I'm saying we because as a company, I was kind of around the edges. But I remember advising the computer guys when they were doing the first mocap suit, you know, like in... uh, that guy, Andy Serkis, who does Gollum and the monkeys and Planet of the Apes and everything. They were trying to figure out how to not have to use a classic Disney cell flop animator to do animal locomotion. They were trying to figure out how to shortcut actually having a proper illustrator. So I had taken drafting in high school. I knew you could describe any object with three angles, front view, top view, and side view. So we took... These old Mitchell Rockover cameras that were used to document the nuclear tests in Roswell. They we put, we, we put a, a, a Geiger counter on them and they were like it went off the charts. So I mean we <laughs> were putting from our, Bikini Atoll. Yeah, they were half a 50 million year half life, and we're putting our eyes on them all day long, and it would fog the film. We're going, why is the film fogged? Because you're putting it in a nuclear, you're putting it in a radioactive box, front view, top view, and side view. And we went down to the office store and got those little Avery dots like you'd use to put on file folders. You know, red one for this, green one for that. Put one on every joint and then have the three cameras shoot it and then play that stuff back and, and physically track the elements. And then you could create a skeleton on which you could, a hierarchical animation upon which you could skin. You know, you could then put fur or texture or so on. And then we had to figure out how to light stuff. And because I had a little bit of knowledge in all these areas, I was handy. You know, there were people that were mathematicians that were standing at blackboards, whiteboards, just working out the original vector graphics and then raster graphics. And that was all coming from there. They were doing something similar at ILM. I went from doing some little tiny jobs to doing the biggest clients on earth. You know, another, it was like going from the Texaco station to Reykjavik, but now I'm going from small town production to biggest budgets there ever were. It was the eighties and, you know, I was doing super bowl spots and I launched the C4 Corvette. um, Oh, I didn't know about that one. Turbo, turbo Mustang, uh, Thunderbird turbo coupe. Yeah. And not all of them was I director on, but either, you know, uh, either I became creative director of the company. And uh, so any job that came in, and I think it was the visual communications and the, the brainstorming and the free association. That's kind of what I actually, what I would like to be doing going forward with the AI is, is kind of teach creative thinking, you know, yeah. because a lot of stuff that comes natural to me. I, I'll look at something, I'll go, but uh, a lot of people just can't prime that pump, you know, and there are Technologies and systemologies that can allow you to kickstart a uh, idle brain.
0: Well, let, let's talk about it. let's unpack that a little bit. Like, if someone's listening and they're, they're they want to be more creative or they want they want to come up with new or original ideas or better ideas, what are some of the basics that is you used? Is the to mind
2: expanding drugs portion of the
1: <laughs> yes. podcast? You know, brainstorming, free association, and synectics. Synectics is one of my areas that I, I think is really interesting. And you can, you can jump on the, the bot and, and read up on them because what I could tell you now could be done you know, in, in the next hour, 12 seconds for, for a bot to go into. But there are, there are ways to break down a problem by analyzing. It's just like the answer is always in the question, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can properly uh, ideate and articulate to yourself what it is you're trying to do, then within that, there are actually technologies, systemologies that can allow you to fire it up. And it's just kind of like priming a pump. A dry hand pump will never do anything unless you pour a little something in it. Synectics, in particular, it, it, it you take keywords and then you elaborate from that. But I think it'd be easier to just kind of research that stuff. You know, I spent four or five years full-time teaching. I taught visual communications and all levels of photography. In the process of doing that, there was no syllabus. There was no... They just dumped me in there and so I sort of created my own way of teaching and anybody in an art school is was generally the best artist in their high school and it's just like being the tallest kid in your high school. You're going to play basketball, you're the tallest kid, you're going to play volleyball or basketball, you're the artistic kid, you're going to be an artist. But they're never challenged and they're never taught high school art, middle school, grade school art. You're the one that can handle staying within lines or going outside the lines, whichever is sort of appropriate and you have a sensibility for color, to then actually study that stuff and be challenged. So anybody that came in there was whatever they produced the first semester was average, you know, and then from there on they had to grow because I, I had a high school art teacher that did that to me. I mean, I was always the, you know, best with the crayons or the pencil or the airbrush or whatever. And he just, he just shut me down. He just goes, Yeah. C. I go, what a minute, I've never gotten anything less than A plus. Yeah, but that's average for you. So you got to impress me. You got to improve. And that got me off my, got me off my ass, honestly, yeah. you know, and that's what I try to do in mentoring is number one. Well, when I was teaching, I'd always try to identify the strength of the particular student. And then I would try to uh, force multiply that because you can try to jam a square peg into a round hole, but it's better to just really make it a more precise fit in the round hole, you know, so. Whenever I'm mentoring, or, or when I went from what I learned, teaching made me really uh, good at running a, a film set. As a director, you're—it's a benevolent dictatorship. It's your vision. Everybody is there to execute. But everyone in that room is the best at what they do, or they don't make it to that set. You know, you can either uh, work with them, or you can struggle against them. And one of the things I learned when I was teaching was to listen, watch, and learn, and then figure out the best way to move everything forward so on my sets i appreciated what the makeup artist had to say i appreciated what the key grip had to say i made the decisions but the fact that i respected all the players made us all sort of elevate the game never had more joy and fulfillment than running a set you know being out in the middle of somewhere getting ready to shoot at dawn and you got 20 grip trucks and caterers and all this i'm going i cannot believe they're paying me to do this, you know? <laughs> Sure, but yeah, yeah, a lot of, a lot of automotive, a lot of special effects, every category. It was just, I was in the right place at the right time, yeah. you know? And it's that
2: kind of recurring theme of the love for education, the love for mentoring, you know, seems to have been the next phase, you know, as we continue to unwrap the onion, it's yeah. the next phase of, of Brucey's life.
1: You know, I don't, I, I don't think you ever learn anything as much as when you have to explain it to somebody else. Yeah. You know, that's, I was not prepared to teach I have a teaching degree. I couldn't teach high school or grade school, but I was able to be a college professor or not a professor a lecturer. You got to really earn a professorship on a, I'm DGA director. Directors Guild of America. For yeah. Those that don't so know. to be an assistant director, you have to go through layers and layers of education and you have to understand all of these things. But as a director, you just have to come in there with a vision and somebody who's backing that vision. I would never qualify to be an assistant director or a production manager. Maybe I would because I've been around them so much and I learned from everybody I work with. Over and over again, it's been a combination of confidence and accrued experiences that allowed me to just uh, step into the highest level of something. My, My life's not been just like this rocket sled ride to the top. I've had plenty of backsliding and all that stuff. When an opportunity has come up to be in charge, I take... I grab that, you know. And when I have a bunch of people to work with, I look at them as assets. I'm I'm not gonna just push them around. I want to harness and direct all that stuff. Robert Abel and Associates was really like this. It was really great. We were doing all the best clients and I was shooting two hundred and seventy days out of the year and I cut a pretty good day. Day rate, my day rate had a lot of zeros in it. And then I participated in the markup on the jobs and more importantly i benefited when I would bring a job in under budget uh, that was unheard of when I cut my deal. Nobody had ever heard of a director who would come in under budget, but I'm a, I'm the kind of person. That
2: yeah. You, 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 you've told me about the, the angry South African that would wreck the portion and just go <laughs> hang out on a boat <laughs> yeah. where you were kind of like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to work for this. I'm going to, I was the guy in Phoenix that would bring things under budget. Yeah, I'll take less money, but I want to cut.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I have no business degree and certainly anybody in the commercial arts, you know, you make your money from the commercial side of the arts, you know, a, a talent and eight bucks will get you a small latte. I, I guess I have a fair amount of street smarts. You know, I think of myself as a problem solver and uh, some guys in my capacity just go, oh, we got three million bucks, six million bucks to do this. They spend it all. What I try to do is figure out the smartest way to do it and and come away with a lot of profit. Yeah, now, I don't leave any production value on the table. I get it on the screen. I had to build the inside of a spaceship one time. It was like uh, this whatever this name of the spaceship is in aliens. That's sort of real gritty looking, mm. you know, uh, working spaceship. I had to do that for some Tyco commercial or something. The budget for the set was uh, three quarters of a million dollars because it's, you know, had to have this really spectacular set. I got a scout and and found a a defunct hydro dam up in British Columbia and I run it for 600 bucks. and I put a bunch of Christmas tree lights all over it in the background, out of focus, and got all those dynamos painted up and everything. (laughs) I think I spent five grand out of that 750 grand on the set, and the client was just this is awesome. You know, yeah, problem solving and doing that kind of stuff would, I was doing that at at, uh, Robert Abel and associates one day. They, I was a bit of drama happened and fishermen came in. Yeah. Yeah. I was an independent contractor, but the guy on the company represented me as uh, an employee and created a, an annual report that was not exactly honest and uh, sold me like a football player to another League and the, that, but you were a free agent. Yeah, that 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 deal couldn't go down. A bunch of stuff happened. They were very surprised that they weren't buying me, and everybody went away mad. Uh, and I opened Bruce Stern Films the next day and took all the clients that were suddenly abandoned. Robert Abel and Associates. A lot of people scattered to the wind. I opened Bruce Stern Films out of my producer's garage and then found a space and then bought a building in Hollywood and and proceeded from there. I had really good fortune with finding uh, good people who like to work with me. A uh, number of people have worked with me, have won Academy Awards and multiple Academy Awards going on to work in long form. I never went into long form. I re- I regret it to a degree, but I also didn't spend my life on three movies. You know, I did a lot of interesting and different stuff and I was around a bit for my kids growing up. Yeah, so I was I was doing all that stuff up until I had a big Physical surprise. I was uh, racing a lot. I had a lot of race cars and a lot of different divisions, and I was sitting in a race car and my legs went numb. I thought the belts were too tight. We were waiting to go on the track, waiting to go on the track, starting the engines, killing them. The race that was on the track before us was. Uh, Having a lot of accidents, so we were sitting in the staging and, and just in there. And I'm feeling my legs go numb, the kind of 10,000 needles kind of thing when you you know sleep wrong on your arm and you lose the blood circulation. Well, that didn't go away. So I was uh, – the guys had to put a tie-down strap under my arms. I won the race with my, with my foot like clubs. I somehow <laughs> still managed to have enough throttle control. I won the race, but the guys had to pull me out of the car, and I couldn't stand up. So that uh, – and that lasted for quite a while. Um, and I had to, in, in the business of being an it girl, an it boy doing creative stuff, they call you, you, you say yes. And, and the day you can't say yes, they have to get someone else. And they go back to that someone else. So I had to, I had to say no to an awful lot of people. And that sort of killed my momentum ultimately after tons and tons of tests thinking i had late onset ms and all this stuff it turned out that at some point and i had my insurance would not cover anything if it was motorsports related and i had had some wheels fail and i'd hit the wall drove straight into the wall at 120 a couple of times you know and so i had had some pretty solid whiplash and maybe concussions but i'm going to the doctor and i'm going he's going what's wrong with you well i'm describing what's wrong he goes well what have you I go, well, I fall off ladders a lot and I snap my head forward like this when I fall off those ladders. You know, I have making up stories. Eventually, after multiple spinal taps and trips through into the uh, scanners and all that stuff, one of the guys goes, do you work near a generator? Do you work near a gasoline generator? And I go, I do. On the weekends, I spend all weekend next to a really big gasoline <laughs> generator. It was uh, kind of carbon monoxide poisoning was the last thing. They were looking at heavy metals build up in my my system and stuff, but while we were still screwing around trying to figure it out, my legs kind of came back. But then it was reinvention time. Hmm. I was doing a lot of uh, teaching myself computer skills because you got to keep going. And that was when you were starting to do the Corel stuff. Yeah, Corel Painter, Photoshop, and uh, yeah, how do you, how do you describe Corel Painter?
2: They, I, I vaguely remember
1: it. They call it a mark making program, and basically. You can make brushes, you can uh, replicate an oil brush uh, and a scumble and and all of these kinds of uh, stuff that relate to a natural media brush. Uh, They have a handful of brushes, but then you can design your own. So it's it's not a push a button thing. You're using a stylus like a Wacom stylus and you stroke by stroke render. So it's as much time as doing an oil painting or a watercolor, but no paint drying time. And you can hit an undo button, but I avoided the undo button. I like a traditional painter. If you paint yourself in the corner, paint yourself out of the corner. You know, I approached it as a guy who had nothing better to do. And I became one of the earliest painter masters. And I was at that time considered to be one of the best in the world uh, in international competitions against the Chinese and the Russians and all that did neoclassical looking ballet imagery and motorsport airbrushy looking stuff. Won the Kodak Innovators Award, which is, that was, that was funny. Uh, Mara, Kodak was a company that made film. They, yeah, they were big at one point. Back when the cameras, <laughs> when you put something in the camera. For anybody my age. But that that's funny. Mara had actually, I, I was, my wife Mara, I was introduced to Corel because my wife was messing around with it. And she and I go, what are you doing there? And she goes, go away, leave me alone, stop looking. And I go, no, seriously. She goes, no, seriously. And I go, well, at least tell me what it is. Corral. So we're working on it separately. (laughs) And uh, I don't know how it was that we came to enter the Kodak Innovators Award. But one day the phone rang and Mara picks it up and she's increasingly excited and she goes, I won the Kodak Innovators Award and rubbing my face in it and dancing around and everything. The phone rang again and they, it was the only year they gave it to two people and they had no idea that we were related, <laughs> let alone married. So after she had, had rubbed my nose in it really severely, I went, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. It was since I moved here, you know, um, I was doing a lot of Different kind of stuff, Western imagery and so on. I was uh, awarded a artist-in-residency with the Idle George Museum, and I showed alongside Ansel Adams. Uh, I entered the—this th- is a big Western art competition that happens here on Memorial Day weekend, That uh, the Fippen uh, uh, Museum and oh, Western yeah. Art Magazine sure. show on the town square. I entered that once and won it. Uh, so I was actually licensing imagery— this is some of the stuff I was doing before we stumbled into each other. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so yeah, I was. How did
2: you guys meet? It was well, that, what dating it, app was it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Grinder. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I won't explain that one. Yeah, Do you have to explain that one. <laughs> come on, man. come on, man. Nice try. No, well, Scotty called one day. He wanted some uh, advice on some camera gear. I was, I was actually designed a line of camera equipment. That's right. And uh, at one point we had 300 part numbers that I had designed and I won some design industrial design awards. And it was kind of good for a while. And Scotty called and was talking about it. And, and we realized we were in the same town. I mean, yeah, it was was crazy. I mean, yeah. So then we yeah, it was just the
0: coolest looking follow focus out there. It just looked, it was very robust and minimalist, which we needed for being in the field. And next thing you know,
1: you know, it was like when the when the Honda, to use another reference, nobody understands. But when the Honda Goldwing came out, it was this Porsche style flat six water cooler engine. engine. Yeah, a boxer engine and a motorcycle. And it was spectacular. And, it, and then some people started designing saddlebags and windscreens and everything. And it was the platform of choice. And then Honda re- created all that stuff and put all of these accessory companies out of business. My accessory company which I designed. I was a preferred vendor for Panasonic, Sony, Canon, and Nikon. Uh, And Sony actually approached me to design some components for them, which is pretty interesting because normally with the Japanese company, it's not invented here, forget it. Yeah, I was doing all this stuff and then they just created their own versions or they added uh, features to the camera that made my stuff uh, irrelevant. So that was another arc of doing something kind of fun. We had some coffee, I think, and then, you yep. were getting ready to do the uh, the original. The, lon- the loneliest. Loneliest place. Yeah, that's right. That was over Thanksgiving. You said, I'm not going to sit and watch football. I never <laughs> do. And I said, I got sons-in-law who I don't really like, and they're going to sit at my house and watch football. Can I come with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's yeah. exactly what happened. I think you had about two days' notice. Oh, and I didn't know we were going on an actual get out of the car thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I was, as usual, in the wrong clothes. And I, I remember when we stopped at Flagstaff, I bought a, a liter water bottle just because I thought it was cool. And then next thing you know, we're marching up the 58-mile bench. Yeah. I, thought, mile bench I, yeah, I thought we were going to just go for a drive. And then we're, we didn't quite have to make a snow cave, but we were huddled under <laughs> a, a rock ledge. Yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> oh, that was such a fun trip, trying to get to the most remote point.
1: And you just, in the you lower 48 just kinda, States. I uh, did
2: a similar trip, I guess, taking I did, an EV to a, a similar spot. I did. So I,
0: when Bruce and I did this trip with Cam from Nemo and Ray Highland and everybody, uh, the goal was to actually get to the physical location that was the most remote, which included trekking for hiking for many miles. But what we recently did was we took an EV to the most remote point that you can access on a dirt road in the lower 48, which is in the same area. Just slightly different location.
1: I remember when we were doing the original trip, and that's ten years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I realized I was the oldest guy by twenty years, (laughs) and I figured uh, it's going to take him extra time to get my corpse out of here. So I just volunteered to do everything first, like the rappelling and the jumaring and all that. Because yeah, no, that was that was a lot of fun. A lot of I uh, do have some great photos of you rappelling. <laughs> do you think that rappelling artist made my butt look big? I'll be honest.
0: You know, you know, you were fantastic. Yes, yeah. you were fantastic. That yeah, was- so that started. That started some. And you, I mean, you had jeeps, and you'd done a lot of off-road driving and and dirt driving and riding and everything else like that. But not combining that with travel, really. Well, and and
1: not having. Chums, you know, yeah. that's that's the thing about the overlanding community versus having a four-wheel drive and driving it around the mall and all that stuff. You know, it's super valuable to me. I mean, obviously, that chance meeting, we then led to the opportunity for me to join you on Ex- Expedition 7. That's yeah.
2: where the bromance really started. That's right. That was the
1: big spoon, little spoon moment. It was. Yeah, we spent but four we're not, years, we're not four quite years jo- sleeping together. Yeah, <laughs> not quite joking when we say we spent more time sleeping with each other than with our wives, uh, and, and he is incredibly snuggly. I just want to go on record as saying that. I'm a, I'm a snuggly guy. And, and the most annoying thing is that He'll trick me into telling the story just so it'll, he'll fall asleep. You know, you know. I have a way I of putting people that. to sleep. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And then the way Bruce, the carburetor. tell me the story about the playboy model again? No, it'd be about how the carburetor float bowl works. You know? And then I mean, this gentle, this sweet gentle snoring. But but yeah, no, we it, that was that was a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, don't we don't peg the snoring just on Scott. I I was on a brief portion of that trip too. Y'all both snore. Like chainsaws. Uh,
0: Actually, we need to put into this podcast like very
2: large, like industrial chainsaws. Yes. I mean, I mean, maybe early industrial age locomotives, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something,
1: something just post steam. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think we do. We do have
0: to put in the YouTube video, Matt actually asleep with his fingers still on the type on the, on the laptop, trying to write while we were driving across the United States.
1: Well, my, my favorite picture of Matt, and I probably still have it was we were up in Vegas for, for uh, the, the car show or whatever it is. And those guys that you stand outside the convention center with the porn...
2: Oh, thing. I love collecting those. I'm always trying to find one that says Laura. Uh,
1: that's my wife's name. And I've never found one. Well, I got all of them. And then Matt was asleep and I just poured them on him in, in the bed. And oh, then that was a the Liberace pictures. mansion. That's
2: the Yeah.
0: That's the, <laughs> yeah. That's the that's place. Right. Yeah. That was the weirdest place we ever rented. It was yeah. like a 10,000 yeah,
2: square when, when, yeah. foot. Now think hard. The weirdest. Let me think. Back yeah, when SEMA was. wasn't just rebranded Cima, Chinese yeah. things.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, we did. I mean, we drove... Alaska. We drove across the U.S. Mm -hmm. together on E7. We stopped in New York for a minute. That's right. We did. Feather boa moment. Yeah, we have that. Can go in the in the show notes as well. Got Bruce.
2: It's the Bruce. only time that I will ever have a feather boa on my hand while eating a hot dog next to the commissioner of the NBA oh, and yeah, the owner true. of the Utah Jazz. <laughs> people exactly were, people were interesting.
1: M- I'm not going to name names, but people were messing with me on the trip across uh, the U.S. And and so I arranged for a trap in New York. Well, first mm. I arranged to have all the, the police officers' personal vehicles towed from in front of NBA, <laughs> So we had some 80 feet of parking. Try to make that happen in New York City. Yeah. And then uh, because I was the one who theoretically knew his way around Manhattan because I had lived there, I happened to have a, a, in the Bruce Dorn Girlfriend Network, which is widespread. Yeah, you haven't even mentioned the GFN. Yeah. BDGFN. Called up one of the members of the the local chapter of the BDGFN and had hers curbside somewhere uh, in Midtown with a, a, a pink cowboy hat. Yep that I fit Greg uh, Miller. And I had one, no, no, I had one. I had a diamond tiara built into it because Greg <laughs> had tried to get me one in a truck stop somewhere in Colorado <laughs> and they were all children's sizes. So I called ahead and made sure I had one. And then this girl uh, amb- uh, you know, I got us down the street, ambushed us, uh, put on my properly fitting hat and wrapped Greg in a pink feather bow, <laughs> which emotionally overwhelmed him for a moment. And then from then on, the pink feather boa was either punishment or a reward. It was for for the the rest of the trip. For the rest of the trip. And weren't some of the feathers plucked to make some flies? I think so. Exactly. I wonder what ever happened to the pink feather. Uh,
0: You know, there is some sadness. That's probably one of the great losses of Expedition 7. We, We actually lost the pink feather boa somewhere, probably in Russia. I don't know. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. probably (laughs)
1: either that or on the ferry. (laughs) Maybe one of my girlfriends on the ferry got it. (laughs) So
0: this is a story that has to be told. So Bruce and I were we're traveling through Europe with Expedition Seven. We arrive at at Nordcap in these Land Cruisers, and and Greg Miller and I are standing up and underneath the the you know the art. You know, Atlas. Installation Atlas holding up the world at at uh, Nordcap, and we're getting all these photos, thinking that we're in looking, fog. thinking that we're looking cool. And then Bruce is like, "Hey, I want a photo too." So I, you know, I grab my camera, and there's it's totally socked in with fog. And Bruce stands up there, and this is an absolutely <laughs> true story. <laughs> so Bruce is up there in in a you know in his all of his Arctic gear and his his green glasses. And out of the fog, this woman is running. She's running through the fog. I mean, you hear it. You hear the crunch, crunch, crunch. And I turn and I look and this woman runs out of the fog and she is wearing a fleece jacket, the exact same color as Bruce's glasses. She runs up the steps. She hugs Bruce and kisses Bruce. She turns and looks and smiles for the photograph, which we'll put in Mm. the video. And then she runs back into the fog. She said no words to Bruce or anyone. She ran out of the fog kissed him hugged him smiled for the photo and then ran back into the fog
1: that that sure that sure messed with the rest of the guys on the on the tour <laughs> nobody could figure it out yeah,
0: yeah. so well then we used that to our advantage for the rest of the oh, yeah. adventure for sure
1: yeah. I, one of my favorites was when we got on the the oceanic ferry yeah and i tricked the uh, uh from stockholm to Tallinn in estonia it was, you and i were in line first we're waiting for the uh ticket booth to open to get on the ferry with all the semis and yep. all the stuff and the rest of the E7 guys are behind us and they're getting ready to open up the booth and I see there's a, obviously a senior kind of guy there and a, a really attractive young woman who seemed like might she might've been in training and they finally opened the window and I am, you know, it's on the, yeah. <laughs> my side and Scotty's driving on the right. And I'm going, would you, would you mind helping me with a little, little joke? She goes, what? I said, so the last time you saw me was in the, in the lift line at Aspen and I ditched you, I ditched you for another chick. And, uh, you're really happy to see me, but you're also pissed, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so I said, could you just play that up? Uh, when we drive away and as we drove away, I could hear her saying to her boss, that was Brucie. That's and, and, and we. I go ha ha ha. That was fun. Uh, that was the beginning of it. It was after we got through there, and and uh, she I think radioed ahead. She yes. radioed ahead, and every woman that worked on the ship, you know, the ones that have the flashlights doing this, they go, "Hey, Brucie, as I go by, <laughs> and the the whole rest of the team as we're walking up our way through the ship, we went by a bar, and one of them handed me a gin and tonic. That's right. She turned and said, Brucie, here's your fa- here's your drink of choice." or something yeah. and handed you a gin and, and tonic. I, just, I just went, thanks, babe. And we went on. And, <laughs> and everybody going, was shocked. <laughs> what the <heck?" laughs> And I'm going, BDGFN. Yeah, they're everywhere. Everywhere. They're everywhere. By the way, all women are, you're the head of your local uh, branch. You, I've got, you know, you know, stationery and stuff. Just
0: reach <laughs> out. Speaking of that, where, where can people follow you so they can become a, an indoctrinated member of the Bruce Brewstorn? Well, network? I have a website and that's all stupid. I'm on. Oh, yeah, brewstorn.com.
1: Yeah, but I never updated. It's a million years old. Uh, I'm on the gram and I want to to get Bruce dot Dorn and, uh, somebody got it. And so I got Dorn dot Bruce. And then later I remembered I had gotten Bruce. You did. Yeah, You have I both them. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I totally forgot about the Bruce dot Dorn. So I only put stuff on Dorn.bruce, Bruce, but I'm going to go back and put some other stuff. Back. You know, you can, you can swap them and keep your audience. I can, I can help you with that. You are magical. I know. I, know. I know, I hear that. Magical
2: Matt.
0: Yeah. Well, so I've got some questions because I think okay. people are still, people that are listening must have many, many questions right now. Mm-hmm. But one of the ones that, that I like, one of the things that I love about you is the fact that you do say yes to opportunities in your life. How do you determine what to say yes to? I say yes to everything.
2: Everything.
1: Yeah. And then let it sort of thought. Okay. I have some money. But no, it was subtle there. I figure the universe is is, you know, is trying right. I mean, stuff comes along, and, and especially stuff that I've, I I try to be have a general knowledge about a little bit of everything, and I'm interested in everything, and so I figure I can always say no later. You know, if an opportunity presents itself, I think that's the universe saying you know pay attention to this. So so I do and. More often than not, it turns out well. I think there's a something something I refer to as the persistence of the river. You can take buckets of water out of the river all day long and you don't really change its course, you know. I think I think that our trajectories are kind of I don't want to be all about it, but I, I kind of feel like it, the you pick positivity. Pick yeah. positivity and and for the most part things go well. It's like, you know. I'm not saying fake it till you make it. But I am saying uh, if you see an opportunity, uh, deserve it. Do the work to deserve it. And yeah. that's served me extremely well. You know, it's, it still does. I mean, I'm uh, 50. This marks 50 years as a full-time creative. And I continue to be astonished that stuff comes my way. Yeah. You know, I, I got nothing better to do, right? This is, this is fantastic. And, and the, I also make a point of trying not to be stuck in my generation. You yeah. know, in fact, I, you've done a great job of that. I don't know too many people my age and most of the ones I do, you know, they, they don't do that much. And if I wake up, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out there and do something, you know, and I love being around younger people and I love annoying them. and uh, <laughs> that That's kind of a normal, normal thing. We were, we
0: were having lunch the other day and it was just before I turned the big 5.0 and you just kind of turned to me and the, you know, we've spent a lot of time together and you just said, you know, Scott, every decade just gets better. And you said, I'm not so sure about the (laughs) seventies yet, but, but it was to me, that was really, it was really thoughtful to say, because when you're looking at, uh, you know, I mean, I did turn 50 just in the last few weeks and, but to hear someone that I respect and admire say, you know what, it's like every, it just, got better and better. It, no doubt things get different. But when I look at your life that you like your 60s or like most people would be lucky to live an entire life doing. So that was good advice.
1: You know, going back to that thing where I was be standing out there in the dark and the sand dunes with all the grip trucks and everything and just going, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe it. Be grateful. Uh, the more grateful you are, the the more the universe smiles on you. Yeah, I really think so. I, I would certainly love to be younger and have the phys- physical physicality and the energy that I had. But I didn't have, I didn't have, I'm not going to say wisdom. I, I'm going to say I didn't have the, uh, the accrual of experiences at the younger age. Thank goodness I had energy and uh, um, physicality because that compensated for the lack of com- common sense and experience. Sure, You know, so now I, you know uh guile and and what was it guile old asia treachery. treachery yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, I
2: heavily depend on that now. am i supposed to ask him a question or something if you want to i don't really want to
0: okay i don't want you to a- have you gotten on to second beer matt
2: man i've been on the second beer for a while oh you have that's yeah. nice I, I'm Bruce sampling, is still on his first glass i'm, of I'm sampling pabst blue ribbon and modello today i have an affinity for
1: cheap beer yeah cheap beer fine wines That's kind of your new, that's you, you need to turn that into a website. Your logo. logo. I'm a juxtaposed person. uh, uh, So here we are beginning of 23. I I was kind of wrapping up 22 thinking, you know, time to slow down a little bit, maybe do a little more of the grandkids stuff and that kind of thing. And you just had
0: a big announcement just that we could probably time so we can time it with that yeah you want to tell everybody
1: well uh canon brought me on uh as an explorer of light yeah we didn't even talk anything about canon that's been a huge part of the last
2: decade of your life
1: yeah i was i was when i was doing my digital art stuff doing the painting and so on uh i was doing uh you know the big trade shows you know i I would get a room with 500 people in it and i would do live demos i'd bring in a a model, and I'd light it, and I'd shoot it, and then I'd use that as reference to do a digital painting, and then I would output it in ninety ninety minutes. So I got so I was really fast. You normally you do this stuff rather slowly, but I invited the guy that was head guy at Canon at the time, Canon USA guy, went over. And I said, "I'm doing a show. I'd love it if you came and caught it." And at that time, they were just starting to push the uh, pigment jet printers. You know, inkjet printers suck. Uh, Pigment jet or g printers are actually, for our, the simplest explanation, would be it's like acrylic paint, tiny micro paintballs. So uh, a proper pigment jet print will outlast the Mona Lisa, you know, in terms of the color fastness. And they needed cool looking stuff to promote that. He created a program on the spot with me and another guy called the Print Masters, and uh, I joined Canon's rank as a Print Master, and then they put me on the road teaching the wonders of maintaining your, you know, all of our digital stuff can go, you know, in one sort of electronic burst. Cody bits. Yeah. And, uh, so the only thing that really is going to outlast you would be if you do make prints, you know, a magazine will be there, but electronic footprints going to be gone. The formats will change. I was in, and then, uh, I was the only person. Well, so the Explorers of Light program was one of the very first sponsored artist program. And and they took a lot of pride in the fact that they located the best in a particular genre. And if they used Canon, then great. They would approach them to become an explorer of light. And as they'd go, this is the best underwater guy in the world. And he uses Canon. And they never threw equipment at people and said, you know, you're super good. Use, Use our stuff. And then, you know, we'll brag about you. They moved me over into that program and I'm a general practitioner. You know, I'm not, I don't specialize in aerials. I don't specialize in uh, high fashion. I've done a little bit of everything. So I'm kind of an odd fit in the program, but because I'm also a cinematographer, done as as much or more cinematography as I have still work, that made me the right guy at the right time when the first ours came out. You know, you had film cameras and you had digital cameras and that was the whole thing. And then there was suddenly. And then the 5D happened. The 5D. The 5D (laughs) happened. Changed everything. And that's when I started my parts manufacturing. I was doing 26 city tours, talking about doing, uh, you know, how to use this stuff for cinema. I think it was. ILM that reached out to me one time when they were doing Red Tails, the story of the uh, African American uh, Mustang squadron,
2: Tuskegee Airmen, Tuskegee Airmen, Tuskegee, Alabama,
1: and they needed to be able to film inside the cockpits of these P fifty ones, and I, I was a consultant on that. So I was in, inducted into the uh, Explorers of Light in uh, eighteen years ago. Every year you requalify. They. We're all fired at the end of the year, and then they re- rejigger the group so that it's the best, supposedly. You don't know if you qualify until about mid-January. They announced the, the new stable, and every year I've I've made that cut. Certainly, the the nature of a social media-sponsored uh, artists has changed dramatically. Everybody has a... Yeah, it's more about the following these days. And it, Yeah, yeah, it certainly is a big, component. It's, it, it's a big component. It's a big and legitimate component. I'm not going to say it isn't. I've always felt that my responsibility was to build followings for my customers, for my clients. I, who cares if anybody knows who I am or recognizes my name or gives a hoot about my opinion. So I don't have, I have very few social media followers. I just, I don't, but I feel responsible for a lot of the followers of some pretty big name companies this year, they have decided that I'm a legend. So they moved me into the legend program. Which you are is, a legend, Brucey. Yeah, right. So they, they have a, a another program, which is I don't know if I've been kicked into the attic, um, but it's it's got some pretty big, some pretty, big, pretty big name people in it. And I'm uh, humbled and, and uh Thrilled that that they have moved me into that. I'm in it for life now. So actually beyond life. So I'll always be in, in the Canon Legend program. So. Yeah,
0: that's fantastic. And cool. so deserved, man. It's just amazing.
1: Well, it, more importantly, uh, they said, you know, and we're sick of you not doing projects. I haven't done anything really cool for them in a while because they have to spread it around among all the, you know, the 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 people that they bring in, the, the fresh horses, you know, so to speak. But I'm getting ready to go out and do some really good work for them. It's yeah, it'll very be exciting. It'll be amazing to see what you come very up with. Very exciting. Yeah, very exciting. I'm, I'm chuffed, as the Brits would say. I got a big, I fat I don't uh, assignment to, to go uh, make a camera look awesome. It is an awesome camera. I'm thrilled to be there. It's like having a... Uh, Kentucky Derby capable winning horse and they called the oldest jockey in, <laughs> in the world to ride it. I, I couldn't be, couldn't be more excited. Couldn't be more excited. And all my mentees are doing great. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time uh, trying to help people and every time they have a victory, it's a victory for me. So.
0: Yeah. If you were to ask something of our audience, how how can our audience support some of the mentor Work that you're doing, or is there a challenge that you have for the audience around that? Because you made a difference in so many people's lives.
1: Well, you know, we were we were talking uh, before uh, about trying to uh, sort of magnify that or 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 increase it. But and I, and I had the, the sort of the conceptual name Elevate One. You don't know everything in the world. I don't know everything there is no, but everything. But I I know something, and there's somebody that's one rung down on the ladder from me and i don't care how new you are at your art form your writing your music your your image making you're somewhere and there's someone else who could use benefit from your wisdom yeah you know at every level so elevate one find one person elevate them yeah you know a rising tide raises all boats i love it and i absolutely guarantee you will Uh, understand what you do much better when you have to explain it when you have to make someone else understand it thoroughly is when you understand it thoroughly yeah you know what my passion is now um i i want to get this heroes network idea going yep the next thing i've written for you is is a, a Pretty, uh, pretty heavy piece of writing, but it, it lead, led me to an idea uh, about trying to organize our community into being, being there, yeah. being there. And I don't know whether we want to talk about that now or talk about it more later. But well,
0: I think once we get it off the ground a little bit more, but the next couple issues of Overland Journal, Bruce has the opportunity or had the opportunity to share a story of Vasilisa, um, who was attacked, viciously attacked in South America um and it's just an awareness that we have within overlanding that um things are not always safe and that there's a there's a way for us as a community to be supportive when someone needs it or someone is or someone is fearful of their safety or someone has had a compromise to their safety so
1: we're all you know a big part of the adventure community is that we're all individuals and we all want to have our little individual adventures but there's so much more we can share we don't have to turn it into a homogenized cookie cutter type of thing to be out there exploring the world and, uh, for women to be able to, uh, go out there and, uh, have adventures and be strong and fulfill uh, every, all their potential. And uh, we just need to make the the world a little safer. So I've got a cautionary tale and, uh, the, the takeaway on it is very positive, but, it's really easy to fool ourselves into thinking that that er, er, everything is is sort of prepackaged and safe. We know better. We get out there. and Yeah, we know there's better.
2: almost an attitude with travelers that if they say something isn't safe, it means that they're not like they're not worthy. They're not part of the club. Like they don't want to.
0: Really you don't have to
1: be reckless to be a traveler. Yeah, it, sure. it, it almost it does
2: trend towards that reckless thing.
1: Yeah. Whenever I see the tagline, and I never felt. A moment. I, I never felt that I was in danger for a moment. I'm going, then your situational awareness is not quite finely tuned. I, I would never want to talk anybody out of, I mean, risk and danger is a seasoning to some some degree. And we can never fully escape it even in our day-to-day life. You know, no, so, ma- yeah. no matter how, how gorgeous the... The shot is of you out there in the middle of nowhere. You're out there in the middle of nowhere. And and I I I feel like there's an opportunity for us to as a community share information. You know, this area is not quite so good right now. Maybe it's a little sketchy. Maybe you could caravan through this area. Maybe you could sidestep this area. I want to organize us to be on call Good Samaritans,
2: you yep. know. And there's so many people in the community that would always help yep. you know i mean uh, from everybody that we've met part of the joy of in, travel in the overland world I,
1: I mean yeah i mean it's it is a community and a and part of the kinship com- yeah. part of the community isn't just you know going down to the uh the pitch in dinner and and you know everybody's watching the skyrocks you, you got to be there when when the tornado comes in you know yeah, sure and i think we could do a i think we could i'm not gonna say do a better job of it do a job of it you know yeah. i mean i i, I feel like I I know from the story that 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 will appear in the journal that my friend was uh, caught in a terrible situation. And then what was worse, she had no one to turn to. And I know I know just I don't know. But every particle being uh, uh, every particle of my being is absolutely sure that there was somebody from our community within a couple hundred miles yeah there's somebody in our community within a couple hundred miles of all of us There's probably somebody within a couple miles yeah. you I know mean, there's
2: only so many routes right that most uh, people go on
1: I don't know how you could uh, how you could find any place on earth where there isn't somebody in the overland community kind of nearby and if yeah. if we had a way to be able to send up a flare and call on the cavalry to be there when somebody is absolutely in need and has no one to turn to, because a big part of being solo is being solo. And a big part of being out there in the middle of nowhere is you're in the middle of nowhere. There aren't emergency services, you know. Oftentimes, And yeah. so I think it will be a small but big thing to organize organize us into a community that is on call. Yep. You know, I mean, how many times have we seen it? Somebody busts an axle on the White Rim Trail and they, or they're out of water and everybody. But we need to have that for um, those of us who... Actually, find ourselves in a vulnerable position. Yeah. You know, and there's plenty of times when you, not plenty of times, but there are those odd occasions when it can go so horribly wrong that you, you can barely cope. And, yeah. you know, we can fix that. Yeah. Or at least yeah. be, community
0: can be present to help. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and uh, be a support. Yeah. And get some, get a, a mechanism for that. So, you know, let's plan on having a future podcast where we talk in more detail. We are working on it. Bruce has got an incredible idea uh, and has done a lot of effort to flesh it out. And he's pulled a bunch of people together. And now you're committed to it. We've talked about it. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, I'm tenacious. I will. will. And treacherous. And treacherous, tenacious, all the T words. (laughs) Tall. That's really the thing. T-Rex. Yeah, yeah. But it just kind of goes along with... Trying to stay involved, you know, the more you stay involved, the more that you choose the positive, the better things go. Yeah. Well, it seems
0: like it. Yeah. Choose the positive path. Well, we could spend another two hours talking to Bruce. Well, actually, I spent four years traveling around the (laughs) world with Bruce and I never ran out of Bruce stories. So hopefully we'll get you back on for some more. Bruce, I just, as a, as a friend, I'm so grateful that I called you that one day in Prescott. And that we've been able to have this decades long friendship. Uh, you've taught me so much and I've learned so much about life and about travel and about being thoughtful of others from you. Uh, it's just been an incredible joy, Bruce, to have you as a friend. So well,
1: I'm going to get all sappy eyed. Yeah. But, you know, it, 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 it flips around, right? When you develop a deep friendship, everybody benefits. And I've learned from both of you guys. I've learned from Matt to pick better beer primarily, (laughs) but, but there's nothing wrong with a
2: good, solid Midwestern beer. Please sponsor me.
1: That's right. Pabst That's right. There's yeah. Your chance. Let's yeah, see what if it's a Canon Explorer, it would be a Pabst uh, Lush. Yeah, we, 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 Lush we, Legend. I, I think. See, I think we could we could come up with a marketing campaign and take it to them. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, have they've, it,
2: they've got to come to me. Have I taught I have you to nothing, stay authentic Matt? To my have I taught you nothing? Followers. You've got
1: to attack. You've, got well, to, you've taught me
2: a lot, Bruce. Take, take so the much beer and attack more than more than I think you'd know and. I don't think that I would be in the position I am in life without you.
1: So yeah. I deeply care about you. Gosh, what a love fest. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Do, so let's, it let's do this again. We'll <laughs> screw you. I'm done. I'm like right away. <laughs> <laughs> don't stop. <laughs> stop. <laughs> you know?
0: All right. Yeah. So you can find out more about Bruce at Dorn.Bruce. Yeah. Don't
2: go to Bruce. On, or Bruce.Dorn, because you also have that. I'm going to show you how to
0: connect them both. Yeah. Switch your Roonies. <laughs> yeah. I love it. On Instagram, uh, yeah. uh, an incredible... Career, a lot of beautiful images out there. A lot of them have been in Overland Journal, and they're going to continue there. You're going to see his art and his incredible writing here in the next couple of issues as well. So, Bruce, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for coming. My pleasure. And uh, for my dancing, uh, go to, right to TikTok because that's that's <laughs> where I keep all the <laughs> dance videos.
0: <laughs> love you guys. Yeah, yeah. Love, love you, too, Brucey. Bro. Thanks right. for being on the podcast, and thank you all. We love you guys too, and thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.